Welcome to the Voice of Salvation programming, whose main source is to be an inspiration to you through the message of hope and peace. And this is only achieved when you remain in tune. Stay with us and you will be blessed. The Church of God is taking the whole Bible rightly divided. These words were spoken to the heart of A.J. Tomlinson after earnest prayer upon Burger Mountain on the morning of June 13, 1903. It has been this unmovable revelation that has formed the foundation of the last day's Church of God. The story is familiar to most of us now, how that from that infant beginning, those early saints began to fervently search the Scriptures to uncover the Church of God of the Bible. Great zeal and intense fervor characterized the efforts of our forefathers as they began to rediscover the eternal truths of God's Word that lay hidden from the common churches of their day. In those days, they moved quickly from one truth to another. Some of the helps of the church were uncovered. Some of the doctrine and the full plan of salvation, including sanctification and the baptism of the Holy Ghost, with the initial evidence of speaking with other tongues. Excitement filled the air about our forefathers as they pulled out from the denominational churches and embarked upon this new adventure to be the Church of God. After reading the history, it is easy to recognize that those early saints were especially cautious not to be trapped or brought into bondage again by denominational traditions and organizational structures that were contrary to the Word of God. However, what was most remarkable about those early days in the Church of God were the great manifestations of God's power. Our forefathers did not seem as interested in building the system of the Church as they were in living the system. The doctrine as it was rediscovered was not printed and placed in track racks to gather dust. Rather, it was lived in the hearts of the members, and they were indeed epistles known and read of all men. They were not only the church of the living God, they were a living church, and their members were lively stones. Indeed, they were the new and living way. Their vision was that if the members were living epistles known and read of all men, then the body of Christ collectively should be the whole Bible known and read of all men. Those early saints were committed to a habitation of God through the Spirit. They were committed to be a people that the Holy Ghost could work through, preach through, teach through, witness through, heal through, and work miracles through, manifest and demonstrate through, and shout and love through them. They were committed to be a house for God to dwell in, and their God was an exciting and powerful and living, compassionate, active God, their house was always full of His presence and glory. He was manifested everywhere in the church of God in many ways. Holy Ghost demonstrations were commonplace among them. Literally, He would maneuver the member of the church into positions to visibly demonstrate His will. And then many times He would prompt messages and interpretations to further explain the demonstration. He was in every way exalted in those days. The glory that was felt upon the church caused it to grow rapidly. Many came out of denominationalism to be Church of God members. And gradually, as the church grew and prospered, 
there was some social acceptance. As one historian has properly written, the Church of God became a household word in the South. With all of this, it is important to note that in almost every movement, the second and third generations have lost the excitement and fervor that ignited the first generation. And with the loss of spiritual fervor, their vision becomes dim and their initial purpose forgotten. Gradually, the third or fourth generations fall to the social pressures about them until they become comfortable in the status quo of society. Flattered by their own applause and commendations, they become settled in the comfort of their padded pews, of the carpet and the material wealth until they are blind to what has taken place. Thus, this generation of the Church of God is confronted with the famous Shakespearean quote, to be or not to be. That is to say, will this generation have the courage to continue to be the Church of God? Will the pioneering spirit that gripped the hearts of our forefathers continue to burn in our hearts? Will this generation be willingly to sacrifice all to remain the Church of God? The answer is yes, according to prophecy. However, allow me to qualify that yes. To whom do we refer when we say this generation? Certainly not every professing member on the roll. No, we mean only those that have their sights set on the rapture. Only those who confess by the way in which they live that they are strangers and pilgrims in this world. Only those who have embraced the whole Bible and are willing to forsake all to be the church of God. Indeed, only those who are offering themselves a living sacrifice for the hope of eternity. Yes, there will be a glorious church to present unto Christ, but not before a great purging, not before a great shakening. To be sure, only those that are wholeheartedly committed to being the church of God will remain. The phrase or verb to be, by definition, means to exist, to live, and to have a real state or experience. It also means, according to Webster's Dictionary, to remain or to continue to exist. The term church means called out or to be separated from the world. The church of God is a people whom God has called out to be peculiar unto himself above all other people. It is a people who are separated by desires and affections. To be church of God means to be spiritual, to love God and to honor his word above all else. It means to love, to pray, to sing praises, to witness, to teach, to preach, to fellowship and service, to give of oneself, to be flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone in the spirit. Here then is the need of the hour, a commitment to be the church of God now. That is to say, to be separated from the world, and dedicated to the cause of the Bible. Perhaps we speak too much of the triumphant church of the future at the expense of the suffering church of the present. It must be realized that the church of God must become a suffering church before she becomes a glorious triumphant church, a travailing church before a raptured church, a fighting church before a victorious church. To be the church of God means to suffer, to be afflicted, to be chastised. It means to be opposed and persecuted. This is our destiny before perfection indeed. The road to perfection 
will be a road of suffering. Our forefathers in this century suffered before us, and the early church before them, and the prophets before them, and the church in the wilderness before them. In the point of fact, the church in the wilderness prefigured the church of today in suffering afflictions. Ironically, however, these adverse conditions never hindered the progress of the church. Rather, the adversities always seemed to spur the church onward towards her goal. Adverse conditions and sufferings have a way of keeping us sober and close to the one who can help us. The church's greatest moments in history have been under the hand of opposition and adversity. Suffering, affliction, and persecution have always served as the catalyst to propel the church into action. It was under extreme adverse circumstances that the early church went forth everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. Indeed, in the face of Jewish opposition and Roman persecution, it was said of them that these that have turned the world upside down are come hither also. How did they do it? They lacked many of the things that we think we must have today. Consider that they had no radios or televisions and social media and internet, adequate or convenient means of transportation. Indeed, they had no beautiful church buildings and publishing houses or sophisticated educational facilities. Consider also that the early church was, for the most part, uneducated and poverty-written. Yet they got the work done. How is the question? Clearly they were inspired. They were alive. They were a new and living way. Christ was their living bread. God was their living Father. And they drank living water and they preached the living word. They were consecrated vessels through which the Holy Ghost could minister. The Spirit burned in them as they went forth house to house and from town to town with the gospel. They lived sanctified and separated lives. Their power was in their holiness. They demanded righteousness and hated even the garments spotted by the flesh. They emphasized praying through and being filled with the Holy Ghost and fire. They were uncompromising. They challenged the powers of hell. Those early saints preached holiness to the Lord without compromise. Christ was everything to them. He was their Lord, Master, Friend, Savior, Shepherd, High Priest, Healer, prince and husband. Their hearts burned within them, and their lives were consumed with the fire of the Spirit. Their total commitment was to be the church of God, not just an organizational system, but a living organism. The actual work and preaching and teaching and witnessing and shouting and dancing and clapping and praising and manifesting, demonstrating and worshiping was done by the actual flesh and blood members of the Church of God, not the helps, governments, or organizational structure. These helps are not to be discredited, of course, because they are a scriptural and valuable strength to the Church of God. But they are what they are. They are only helps. They are but channels through which spiritual members may work. The life of the auxiliary is like the life of the members is in the Spirit. The point is, that if the early church could do so much without the organizational sophistication that we have today, how much more should we be able to accomplish with it? The answer is plenty. But we have a power shortage, an energy crisis in the church today.
Our storehouse of the Church of God organization is like an arsenal filled with tons of TNT, but with no fire to light it up. It is potentially explosive, but it needs the spirit to ignite it. There is a solution to our crisis, however. After all, that is what we need, a solution. Firstly, our crisis will begin to be solved by recognizing and acknowledging the church's greatest enemy, sin. However, sin is not always easily detectable. It must be exposed by the word of God. It is not the presumptuous sins that are defeating us. Rather, it is the hidden ones. It is the sins of laziness and indifference, of lukewarmness and unconcern. Indeed, it is the lack of spirituality and godly power. The Laodicean Church of God, according to Revelation chapter 3, was commanded to repent not of adultery or fornication or stealing or drunkenness or of any of the well-known sins, but because she was not spiritual. She had lost her first love. She had locked the Lord out of her heart. The Holy Ghost was no longer preeminent in her midst. Moreover, instead of the ministering of the Spirit, she had to implement forms of godliness to fill the vacuum and emptiness in her services. So the boredom began, and the spiritual was replaced by the ritual. Most of their attention was given to buildings, beads and candles and priestly vestments, ceremonial rituals, prayer books, and speech-making rhetoric. No wonder Christ became sick of it and desired to spew it out of his mouth. Are we to think that he would be any less sickened by it today? The Lord told Israel, I hate and I despise your solemn assemblies. Why? Because they lie upon beds of ivory and stretch themselves upon their couches and eat the lambs out of the flock and the calves out of the midst of the stall that drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the chief ointments. But they are not grieved for the affliction of Joseph. Indeed, it was because they were at ease in Zion and drew near to God with their lips while their hearts were far from him. Again, are we to think that he would despise these kind of assemblies any less today? Yea, he despises them even more. Awake to righteousness is the command from the Apostle Paul. Awake to holiness. Awake to spirituality. Righteousness is equal with shouting and dancing and praising and clapping. And if not identical, it is at least inseparable. We may rest assured that when the shouting stops, sin is lurking in the shadows. Discern carefully the absence of the manifestations of the Spirit may mean the absence of God. Surely the mystery of iniquity is at work. We are made to feel secure, all cuddled up in organizational ritualism, hidden behind auxiliary programs and ceremonies and seminaries, conferences and conventions and so on. And we may feel secure. Now, of course, these things are necessary and good when they are spirit-filled. But we all know that something is wrong, but we do not know quite where to point our finger. We say to ourselves, I go to church regularly. I pay my tithes regularly. I attend communion and feet washing services and so on. The fact is that although all these things are necessary, they are not enough. We must discipline our souls with fasting and prayer. 
But it must be the right kind of fasting and prayer. It must be travailing prayer, agonizing prayer, and such praying that will awaken our souls to righteousness. We must get rid of the slick, superficial religion where we can just fit our fasting in with a diet and where we pray time and time again without tears. We must get rid of this token appearances at church and all this half-hearted dedication. In a word, all of this is hypocrisy. These are the circumstances that moved Isaiah to prophesy to Israel. Cry aloud and spare not. Lift up thy voice like a trumpet and show my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. What is our sin? They inquired. We are as a nation that did righteousness. We seek God daily. We delight to know his ways and forsake not his ordinances. We ask for justice and take delight in approaching God and we fast. Why then is God not pleased? Let the prophet answer. Behold, in the day of your fast, ye find pleasure and exact all your labors. There was the problem. It was a hypocritical fast. There was no real, dedicated, sacrificing, or disciplined service. Their whole concept of service was a mere show in the flesh, a form without inspiration. Whereas the Lord requires vessels that are sanctified, consecrated, and meet for the Master's use, vessels that are wholly consecrated to Him, whose affections are set on things above. The Lord desires men and women that will humble themselves and pray, men that will afflict their souls, and men whose follow ground is broken up so that the word of God may grow and bring forth fruit. The Lord requires an earnest, effectual fast where the bands of wickedness are loosed, heavy burdens lifted, a fast where the oppressed go free and every yoke is broken. Then shall thy light break forth as the morning, and thy health shall spring forth speedily, and thy righteousness shall go before thee, and the glory of the Lord shall be thy reward. Then shalt thou call, and the Lord shall answer, and thou shalt cry, and he shall say, Here I am. And the Lord shall guide thee continually, and satisfy thy soul in drought, and make fat thy bones. And thou shalt be like a watered garden, and like a spring of water, whose waters fail not. To be the church of God is to pay a great price. If we desire to reign with him, then we must also suffer with him. For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. Indeed, as long as the church of God is in the flesh, it must die daily. Here then is our commitment, that we will ever be a habitation of God through the Spirit. Yes, that we will ever guard the church against doctrinal heresy, but also that we will never bow to the spirit of slumber, never succumb to religious complacency. Wherefore he saith, Awake thou that sleepeth, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. And again Isaiah encourages us to awake, awake, and to put on thy strength, O Zion, Put on thy beautiful garments. Shake thyself from the dust. Loose thyself from the bands of thy neck, O captive daughter of Zion. 
This was the commitment that moved our forefathers to such a dedication at the turn of this century. Like David before them, they had proposed in their hearts not to give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find out a place for the Lord, an habitation for the mighty God of Jacob. Nothing less will suffice our generation to finish the work and to justify our claims to being the church of God.